Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and let's read together from the verse number 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a womb with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. As our studies in Revelation were drawing to a close, I was at the same time reading through uh, these letters of Paul uh, to the Thessalonican church. And the closing chapters of Revelation were highlighting the glories that would accompany the return of Christ. The church in the first century were encouraged to persevere in light of Christ's return. That was true for the seven churches in Asia to whom the Lord wrote in Revelation 2 and 3. Indeed, it was true for all churches in those days, and it is still true today. We persevere, we press on in light of the return of Christ. Which brings me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Because if you note, this chapter begins with the recognition that Christ's return will be sudden and surprising. It says there in verse number, verse number 2, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. And there is a recognition of this suddenness and the surprise of Christ's return. Of course, the same language is used in Revelation chapter 16. In the words of Christ, Behold, I come. As a thief, blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. Also, of course, Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And so we see, we understand the consistent theme is using this picture, this metaphor, to describe the nature of Christ's coming. But what is significant in First Thessalonians is Paul's encouragement that this day, this day of Christ, will not overtake the people of God. That they will not be overtaken as a thief would overtake someone. Verse number 3, But ye brethren are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. So you're not like the ungodly. You're not like those who will suffer destruction on that day. You'll be safe on that day. You see, when the previous verse is considered, the verse 4 speaks of that day overtaking them. The previous verse speaks of destruction. And the implication is, of course, that Christ's day, His coming, will not bring destruction upon the believer. They will not be overcome in that day. 
Now that word overtake is, is interesting and clearly refers to destruction here in terms of eternal destruction from the presence of God upon the ungodly. It's also used in the Gospels regarding the young boy who was taken of the demon. And again, remember the boy who couldn't be healed of the disciples after the transfiguration? Well, that boy was taken Taken, the same word used, overtaken, taken, and of course then cast into the water or the fire unto destruction. And so the sense of the word here to overtake has that idea attached to it, the idea of being taken unto destruction. But in the language here, the day will not overtake the child of God in that regard. I don't think it means for a second that they will know the day and the hour. I don't think as that's the idea. The day will come as a thief in the night. That's the general tenor of the word of God. But the day will not bring them harm because they are waiting and ready. And so when Christ comes, they are not surprised. They're expecting his return. They're waiting for his return. And so whilst it is sudden, it is still something they go, oh, Now's the time he has returned. And see, what I'd like to do in light of this, I'd like to work through chapter 5 of this epistle over the next number of weeks and months, just work our way through this chapter under the heading of the church waiting. The church in waiting, I think, is a, it's a good connection from our studies in, this, in, in, in Revelation. And it's, it's a very fascinating presentation of the church's character and action as they await Christ's return. How does the thought of Christ's return impact our thinking and our living? Well, we'll see answers to that in this chapter. And so, over time, we'll work our way through the various verses But tonight, before we get to chapter 5, I want to take some time and note that the matter of waiting for Christ's return was something that was true of this church from its inception. Waiting for Christ's return was true at the very beginning of their spiritual experience. It was not that they were saved for so many years and then they were taught of Christ's return and then they began to wait. No, they had been waiting for Christ's return from the very beginning of their encounter with Christ Jesus. And we know that from the language of chapter 1. Turn back please uh, to chapter 1 and the well-known verses describing their conversion, how they, verse 9, turned to God from idols to serve or to worship the living and true God, and then verse 10, and to wait for his Son from heaven. And the church that had, the people in the church who had come to know saving grace and converting grace, they were those who, as they worshipped God, also waited for Christ's return, the Savior who was raised from the dead, even Jesus, who has delivered them from the wrath to come. And you see, the commencement of this church is such an encouragement. It's a reminder to us of the power of the gospel in a pagan context. It reminds us of what God can do as the word of God is preached and so as we look at this, uh, this beginning of the church and consider it again tonight for a season, again, I want to remind you, I want to encourage you, yes, this is what God can do. But also note, please, that those who come to faith in Christ are those who then wait for the Lord. And so let's begin by thinking about the reception of the Word, the reception of the Word. Turn back to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17 records the history of the beginning of the church in Thessalonica. 
And we have the description of Paul's journey in verse number 1. And they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. And then they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now it was Paul's practice to go to those synagogues and to preach Christ. And he does so for three Sabbath days. Now you think three Sabbath days with two weeks in between. Uh, this is a very, very short time of ministry in Thessalonica because as you read down through the chapter, you see that immediately they encountered trouble. There was persecution and they left the city. And they had to flee. And they go to Berea at that point in verse number 10. But look what it says in verse number 2. They go to the synagogue, verse 3, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And then note the response. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, that some of the Jews believed, and then also the Gentiles, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. A short time of gospel witness whereby Jews and Gentiles were both converted in the wonderful power of God's grace. It is an incredible event in the history of the early church. And whilst Acts 17 gives us again the events and describes the events, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you see Paul's explanation of those events. It says there in verse number 5, our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Here we see the description, or the explanation, sorry, of the description we read in Acts chapter 17. They received the word. Two very simple questions. What was preached? Well, the gospel was preached, verse 4. Our gospel came not unto you. The gospel that the apostles preached. From Acts 17, we know that they said that Christ Jesus suffered, that he rose from the dead. And they say that Christ is Jesus, the one of Nazareth, and they preach him unto you as the Lord Christ, the one who died and rose again from the dead. We've one very short summary of the gospel. Note again what they preached. They preached the details regarding who Jesus was as the Christ and is as the Christ and the events of his death, burial and resurrection. They announced the events of the gospel. That gospel was what changed these people's lives. We must get away from some idea that we need additional information or some bulked up study of the gospel to then convince people in this new intellectual age. The simple facts of the death, burial and resurrection of the Son of God is the gospel content and that's what God used to save souls. And if we are embarrassed of that or think it's not enough, may God have mercy upon us. We understand this is the word of God, the power of God unto salvation. And we see it happening here in a place where there should have been no hope. The Jews were against the gospel. And the Gentiles, they were fond of their Greek wisdom. And yet both Jews and Gentiles under the gospel come to believe the word. How? Well, what was preached? The gospel. How was it preached? Well, verse 5 tells us it was in the power of the Holy Ghost. That's what makes the difference. That's how lives are changed. 
the right message preached in the power of God. You know, many of the modern program-driven agendas are birthed in doubt as to God's will to change souls to the gospel preached. I suspect, I understand the reason. We've lived in days in recent uh, decades when there's been little outward fruit of the gospel in the nation. And so more and more churches conscious, we must grow, we need to be bigger, we need to be an impact in the world even. And so therefore the gospel's not doing that anymore. We've got to think of some programs. We've got to make sure we draw people in for this reason or that reason. And the church becomes an organization of programs and it lacks the power of God. You see, the reason that the gospel is not going forward and seeing souls in the numbers that we hope is complex. We've got to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. We've got to acknowledge the widespread apostasy in the world. We've also got to acknowledge that in God's sovereign will, the power is absent at times in the preaching of the word. We've got to examine ourselves. Is there a problem? Is there sin in the camp? Is there sin in the preacher? Is there sin somewhere that's impairing this situation? Whatever it may be, it's a complex situation, but it is not solved by man's ingenuity. doesn't fix it. It's the power of God attending the simple preaching of the gospel that's used to save souls. The reception of the word, which leads secondly, some more detail to the response to the word, Again, back in First Thessalonians chapter 1, we see the response is described in two words, in much assurance, or three words, in much assurance, in much assurance. I mentioned those two words, much assurance, in the sense that there's a, a building of terms there. A lot of full conviction is the idea here involved. The word assurance is a compound word. Uh, part of that compound is the word full. So much full of something, and that is, is of conviction. And so they're convinced of the truth. Same word is used, Hebrews chapter 10. Let us draw near the true heart in full assurance of faith. The connected word is used in Romans chapter 4. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform regarding Abraham's faith. It's also used there in Romans chapter 14, let every man be fully persuaded. And so what you're seeing here is they've been fully persuaded regarding the truth. As the gospel has been coming in the power of God, they've been convinced regarding the truth of the gospel. And Paul again kind of explains that to us over in chapter 2 and the verse number 13 where he gives some details regarding what happened when they received the word. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. There's full assurance. The recognition that the word that they heard was nothing less than absolute truth. As the absolute word of God. That's the tremendous joy, isn't it? There's so much to learn here. Sometimes we wonder, how can we convince people that the Bible is the word of God? Now, I'm not opposed to good arguments, apologetics to defend the authority of the word of God. That's important. Seeking to persuade people. But look what Paul says in that verse 13 of chapter 2. For this cause also thank we 
God. He has no confidence in all of his well-versed arguments. His confidence is in the power of God. And he understands, he thanks God because he knows that it is God who enabled the Thessalonians to hear the word spoken by men and yet receive it as the word of God. It's God's work in hearts that enables men and women to grasp the truth. Something can change very, very quickly. We might find ourselves and we come to church and we come to church and we never ever expect a soul to be saved. Is that your heart? You come to the house of God and the Lord's there, you think, well, nothing's going to happen here today. And yet, you know what happens sometimes in churches? God begins to move in a wonderful fashion. And one soul saved in the back corner and someone else in the front corner. And before you know it, there's a multitude of people who've come to realize that the words of a preacher announcing the word of God, it is in truth the very word of God. And we say we thank God for that. It's not in the preacher. It's not in clever arguments. It is in the power of God to open the heart. And God is able to do that in our families and in our church for his name's sake, for his glory. Isn't it good to be in a prayer meeting? When you understand that, isn't, it, isn't this the right place to be in the house of God? We're not panicking. We're not foundering in, in doubt and unbelief. We are reminding ourselves again that conviction regarding truth comes as God works in people's hearts. So we must pray. They're convinced about the truth. They're converted to the truth. Secondly, this is again the response to the word. They're converted to the truth. Back to chapter 1, verse number 9. And we read about their conversion. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is all about the heart. Because the word for serve here is a word for worship. Turning from worshipping idols to worshipping the living and true God. This is conversion. The language, the grammar speaks of a once and for all action. You turned. Once and for all, you left off your idols and you turned to serve the living and true God. Now, it may well be the case that this turning was a literal turning from literal idols. Perhaps they were walking towards idols, statues, man-made false gods. But of course we know the definition of idolatry is much broader We know from Ephesians chapter 5 that the covetous man is an idolater. And of course, idolatry is anything that takes our devotion away that's due to God alone. Anything. It's a direct challenge to anything in our lives. It might be family, it may be money, it may be work. Whatever demands our attention and our time and takes our hearts away from God is an idol in our lives. And this world is full of idols. I think it was Calvin said, the heart of man is an idol factory. Always making new idols. We will never cease to make new idols. But here, here these believers, they've come to know the living and true God and they've turned Now, yes, repentance continues in the child of God, but this is a definitive change in direction once and for all when God works in grace and they turn towards God. It's significant where it says, ye turn to God. And the same words are used in verse number three, where it says, your faith to Godward. 
Again, back in the original, those are the same phrases used. And so what you see here is repentance in verse number 9, turning from idols, accompanies faith in God, verse 8 and 9, and that's conversion. Faith and repentance. Turning from sin, turning from idolatry, to serve the one true and living God. And how radical this change was. It's said that from Thessalonica you could see Mount Olympus, the home of the gods. And this pagan, idolatry-loving people, they were converted from this to serve the living and true God. Why would they believe the Apostle Paul? Humanly speaking, it doesn't make any sense. I think I shared with some of the folks in the, in the book club in recent times about going to a little village in Nepal where again a young man in the village shared the gospel and the vast majority of the village believed what he said. Why would you believe a young person with some harebrained idea about a saviour in Israel 2,000 years ago? Why is, why is that believable? Because God changes people's hearts and by the power of God they believe truth and they leave off the lie. And we must understand this. We must live and work in the conviction regarding these things because the gospel hasn't changed. Same gospel. So they're converted to the truth. Thirdly, very briefly, they then communicate the truth. In verse number 8 says that from you sounded out the word of the Lord. They preach the truth. Those who respond to the truth, they in turn echo the truth. That's the word sounded out, is that idea of echoing. What's an echo? Uh, An echo receives a sound and transmits that same sound. And they've received Christ and they share Christ. They communicate the truth to others. Their message is the word of the Lord. That's a great term for the gospel, by the way. The word of the Lord. It's about the Lord, it's from the Lord, it's in the power of the Lord, it's the word of the Lord, it's the gospel. And they send that forth. They do so as that echo. It's interesting, the word that's used here in the New Testament, sounded out, is also used in the Greek translation of the Old with regards to trumpets. Clear, uh, clearly defined pitch clear note from the trumpet, the trumpet of redemption, sounding out the word of God. They were clear in the gospel and they were audible. Sounded out. You know, faith doesn't lead us to becoming private and inward looking and insular and isolated. The word of God enables us to go forward with boldness and to make the gospel known. And they do so, it says, in every place. They communicate the word of God freely to all who would hear their words. So we think of this response to the word. They are convinced, they are converted, they communicate, and finally, they are content in the truth. And here I bring you back full circle to this idea that in their conversion, they were immediately those who waited upon the Lord, verse number 10, and to wait for his Son from heaven. The fair definition of that, the lexicon, the Greek lexicon, says this word means to wait for one. Waiting for a person to come with the added notion of patience and trust. You know, you can wait for someone with patience 
Or you can wait with some for someone impatiently. They said they'd be here at this time and they're still not here. What's going on? This is disgraceful. My time is so important. You get the idea? That's really not waiting in this sense. The sense of waiting here is being content to wait the Lord to come in His good time. Content in His will. Because the second coming, it's a big deal in this church. We'll see that. All sorts of confusing thoughts and thoughts and our thoughts and, and feelings regarding this subject. But they are content to wait for the Lord. You know, waiting for the Lord is a sign of conversion. Those who are impacted by the gospel, they wait for Christ. Because when we think about what salvation is, is it not a recognition that this world is temporary and under the curse? Don't we come to believe that when we're saved? That this world is not our home? And therefore, it's, it's in, inevitable that we wait for Christ to come back. We believe he died and that he rose again. And he went to heaven and he's returning. We believe all that in the gospel. Therefore, we wait. It is not also the case that when we believe the gospel, we believe that Christ is alive. And therefore, I think it's important to remember that our presentation of the gospel should include teaching on the return of Christ. The fact that it's difficult and sometimes disputed, should not prevent us from teaching the truth. It is clear that Paul, in his initial preaching to this church, he taught them the matters of Christ's return. And so may we not wonder, why are so many professing believers fixated on this world? If conversion leads to waiting, why, why are so many people, why are they wed to this world? Why they live their lives as if, as if this world is all there is. You say you're waiting, but in your practice, it's like there is nothing to wait for. Why, why do so many churches focus on what Christ can do for you in this world? We think that's a better way to evangelize? Talk about how Christ will give you a better life? When the Bible is clear, the apostles preached the resurrection of Christ and his return in the recognition that this world will be burned up and Christ will come and make all things new. That is our hope. That's our expectation. Now, of course, it's better to walk in this world as a believer than an unbeliever. But our preaching must make it very clear that we are indeed preaching the world to come. Christ's return in his glory. And so the Lord's resurrection and his return must be in the forefront of our minds if we are truly to be New Testament Christians. Not Christians in North America in this year, but Christians who echo the language of the New Testament Scriptures. Who, as it says in verse number 6, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord. When you're converted, you come to follow the apostles, and they delighted in the coming of Christ Jesus. And so, if we live like this, it will be a great help in comforting and challenging us in this world. And that's what we'll come to in chapter 5, in the days to come in the Lord's will. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. 
The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.